You are listening to Devils and Dirtbags. Season 1 is called Child Molesting Priests. Listener warning. This episode deals with child sexual abuse, incest, and suicide. Episode 7, Father X, Part 3. The next two episodes are going to be totally different than the first six episodes of this season of Devils and Dirtbags. Much more personal, and less of the omniscient narrator that's been guiding the podcast so far. Thanks to a hidden tape recorder, you'll soon hear the voice and sordid tale of the man we've been calling Father X. Almost two years ago, while still in the early stages of researching and investigating Springfield's clerical sex scandal, I tracked X down and paid him a visit, and I got him drunk, drunk enough for him to eventually let down his defenses, confess his sins, and tell me the reason why he turned out to be a depraved child molester. Be forewarned, his infuriating and sad story is full of victims and villains. However, before we visit the ex-priest's tiny apartment in a bedbug-infested building, we're going back in history to a cold day in January 1987, back when I was 18 and the priest was 44 years old, and he'd brought me out to lunch to ask me for a favor. I'll have a gin and tonic, Father X told the waitress at the Italian restaurant on Boston Road in Springfield, about a mile and a half from my childhood home. And my friend, he said, pointing at me, he'll have a bottle of Budweiser. The priest obviously didn't care that the legal drinking age was 21, and I was only 18. On several previous occasions, he'd provided me with beer and holy wine with nary a second thought. We'll need a little more time, though, before ordering lunch. He smiled at the waitress. This is a business meeting. The waitress left to get our drinks, and Father X returned his attention to me. He just finished explaining the details of his upcoming two-week vacation to Barbados. And here's how you could do me a favor. I need someone to babysit the rectory while I'm gone, and I think you're the one to do it. Basically, you just need to sleep there every night, Father X grinned widely. If someone calls with an emergency, give them St. Al's telephone number. The only other responsibility is to unlock the church For Father O'Brien from St. Mary's, he's covering for the weekend. There won't be any daily mass while I'm gone. 
Of course, if you'd come to church last weekend, you'd know all this. <laughs> I'm prepared to pay you $200 for your services. Plus, I'll throw in a couple cases of beer. You can make yourself at home while I'm gone. Just don't do anything I wouldn't do. <laughs> Sounds good to me, I said. When are you leaving? Even today, I wonder why the hell Father X asked me to house sit the rectory. At the time, I was a fairly disreputable 18-year-old. Much to the dismay of my parents, I had quit attending church several months before. As a legal adult, I was finally free to ignore the many Catholic rules and superstitions and ritual magic that had dominated my life up to that point. My folks were also disappointed that I dropped out of community college after a single semester of theater classes. I'd taken a restaurant job with vague dreams of becoming an actor. My immediate interests were beautiful women, psychedelic drugs, and other debaucheries. My parents' response to the news of the rectory sitting gig was a mix of disbelief, suspicion, and anxiety. The crazy stories from that two-week period of my life do not fit with this season of Devils and Dirtbags, so I'm not going to share them here. Rest assured, however, that Father X made a big mistake asking me to watch the place. I didn't totally trash the joint, but when he came home, his liquor cabinet was empty, his upstairs living quarters reeked of cigarettes, weed, and spilled bong water. You had a good time, didn't you? Father Axe said with a sneer when I returned the church keys. A real good time, huh? His face looked stiff, mask-like, and his eyes were seething dark and hard. But the priest had no way to exact revenge, because I wasn't an altar boy under his control. Father X wasn't used to being so powerless, and he clearly hated the feeling. He sneered again, then slammed the front door of the rectory shut. I was a little spooked. The dude was pretty friggin' scary when angry. Luckily, three decades would pass before I saw that son of a bitch again. Flash forward 30 years, and I'm standing in the lobby of a former railroad hotel, converted into subsidized housing, chopped up into tiny one-bedroom units, and studios solely for poverty-stricken senior citizens and mentally ill adults. The sign above the building's intercom system explained that the list of tenants was arranged alphabetically with no apartment numbers as a security precaution. Fortunately for me, that made it easy to confirm Father X lived there. For the entire 250-mile drive from my home in rural Maine to this nondescript New England city, I'd worried about the accuracy of the address. During months of research, I'd found several possible current locations for X. 
He'd lived and worked in and around this city since 1993 after leaving Springfield and the priesthood. The subsidized apartments in this century-old former hotel with a bad reputation for bedbugs seemed to be his most likely location. And so it was. I left without pressing his button. Speaking to X over a lobby intercom wouldn't work. The element of surprise was crucial to this mission, but the plan was pretty basic. Get the ex-priest drunk so he'd confess his sins. X's building was located across the street from a shopping center parking lot, the perfect spot for a stakeout. I was able to position my car with a clear view of the building's front entrance. My surveillance operation officially began on a Wednesday afternoon, a week and a half before Christmas, 2017. The December air was frigid. The season's first snow still hadn't fallen, and the downtown was decked out in holiday cheer. I wasn't cheerful, though. I was pretty friggin' angry, and to be honest, very depressed. Eleven months earlier, I'd stumbled across a mention of Father X and references to his crimes in a wire service news story about the death of another child-molesting priest from Springfield. Around the same time, I saw Spotlight, the film based upon the Boston Globe's stunning expose of the Diocese of Boston's handling of predatory priests and I was deeply saddened by the enormity of the crisis. So I began to research Father X. Google searches turned up a handful of news stories about Jack Ballard's lawsuit, which provided a few details about the abuse. It quickly became clear, though, that Father X was never really punished for his monstrous crimes against children, which further darkened my gloom. Next, via the website bishopaccountability.org, that's bishop-accountability.org, I learned a couple more factoids connected to Father X, but not very much. Then, I took a bad turn. I dove deeper into that wretched database of horror stories, learning of abuse by child-molesting priests that I didn't even know, clerics with no link to Springfield. I spent days and days venturing down rabbit holes filled with tales of devastated and tortured souls violated by priestly evildoers with seemingly zero repercussions for those who caused this terrible pain. In the throes of my depression, I began to funnel my rage for all the unpunished crimes committed by thousands of priests into the figure of Father X. In my head, Father X personified the problem and became personally responsible for the acts of countless villains who destroyed countless lives. In short, I was going insane with anger and sadness. Two questions, why and how, dominated my thoughts. At one point, I tried to quit the research and this project, realizing it was having a negative effect on my mental well-being. 
But these child-molesting priests and their enablers wouldn't leave my mind. So that's how I ended up sitting in the parking lot across from Father X's apartment, equipped with binoculars, cameras, and multiple audio recorders. And, just in case things got rough inside his domicile, a can of pepper spray and thick wire ties, suitable to use as hand and ankle cuffs. I didn't want to have to subdue and restrain an old man. That's a bit much, even for my style of investigative journalism, not to mention the messy legal implications. I really hoped our past friendship, coupled with booze, would be enough to get the ex-priest to spill his guts. That being said, I didn't drive 250 miles to take no for an answer. Thanks to the wonders of the internet, Father X's neighborhood already felt familiar. I had strolled the streets through Google Earth and read reviews of local taverns, trying to figure out which watering hole the ex-priest most likely haunted for happy hour. Embarrassingly, I'd already started the stakeout when it dawned on me. Father X was a 76-year-old retiree living on a fixed income in a shitty apartment, lousy with bedbugs. Highly unlikely the dude had the cash to squander in bars. He undoubtedly got his liquor from a store. Dusk came and went, and the early night of winter fell. I sat there, watching the sidewalks, occasionally starting the car to generate heat. After five hours passed with no sign of the suspect, I decided Father X was probably fast asleep. Time to check into my flea bag motel and get some shut-eye. The next day was going to be a long one. I could feel it. The sun was just rising when I returned the following morning. As soon as I pulled into my parking spot, I noticed a fella that I dubbed Smokey the previous day was already sitting on the bench across the street from the apartment building's entrance. This bench was apparently the unofficial smoking area for the residents of the housing complex, and Smokey was a regular, an old-timer with a long gray beard and a cane. You could set your watch by his addiction. After each cigarette and a short coughing fit, Smokey crossed the street and disappeared back into the apartment building. Then, exactly 20 minutes later, he reappeared, crossed the street, sat on the bench, and lit another smoke. Coughing fit, crossed the street, repeat, again and again. Three hours into my watch, with no sign of Father X... A plan popped into my head, a way to get through the locked lobby door and past the security cameras without ringing X on the intercom, and all I needed was some wrapping paper. I didn't want to abandon the stakeout, though. What if Father X left while I was gone? A missed opportunity to tail him would mean the stakeout was a failure. But I also needed to use a bathroom. After availing myself of the Walmart restroom, I grabbed a couple rolls of Christmas wrapping paper and some self-adhesive bows and used the self-service register to check out as quickly as possible. 
paranoia suddenly led me to fear that the old priest left his building the minute I left my stakeout spot in the parking lot. Instead of returning to the car, my instinct urged me to run across the parking lot to the sidewalk leading into the town's business district. If Father X had left his building while I was gone, the odds were good he'd be headed toward the stores and coffee shops downtown. So I ran to the edge of the business district, and when I turned back toward the apartment building, lo and behold, the ex-priest was strolling toward me on the sidewalk. He was 30 years older and many pounds thicker, but I instantly recognized Father X. His hair was white and longer than it ever was in the 1980s. He wore a black beret and carried a notebook. His jacket ill-fit, his oddly pear-shaped frame, and his jeans were too long, with several inches rolled into cuffs. He was no longer the debonair and svelte man I knew back in the day, that's for sure. He wouldn't recognize me, of course. I was just a, another anonymous pedestrian. So when he passed me, I turned and followed. He entered the barber shop on the next block. I watched through the window as he removed his beret and sat in the barber's chair, gesturing as he explained his desired trim job. I was dying to eavesdrop, but remained outside. Didn't want to take the chance of Father X getting a closer look at me and thinking I seemed vaguely familiar. At one point, the barber placed his hand on Father X's shoulder. I imagined that was the most intimate human contact the former priest had had in a while. Hair freshly cut, the ex-priest paid, walked out, and then headed back in the direction of his apartment building. I followed at a safe distance, but when he reached the entrance to his building, he walked by without a glance. I panicked. Had I been wrong? Had I mistaken a stranger for Father X? Had I wasted precious time watching the wrong man get a haircut? My subject used a crosswalk and headed slowly toward the end of the shopping center, occupied by a price chopper grocery store. I picked up my pace. I needed to hear the man's voice. So while passing him on his left from behind, I bumped into him, jostling him slightly. Excuse me, I muttered, walking on. Quite all right, the man said, then added, no problem. Of course, I recognized that voice. Bingo. I ducked behind a delivery van in the parking lot and counted to 20 to give Father X a head start. Then I resumed the tale. I followed him into the price chopper and watched as he examined a rack of discounted bakery items. Then he stopped at the service desk where he bought two lottery tickets. That was, apparently, the sole purpose of his visit. On the way out, he picked up a handful of free newspapers, then headed toward home. Cutting across the parking lot, I speed-walked back to the car and grabbed my camera, and I was able to snap a couple photos of him before he entered his building and disappeared through the lobby doors. My gut told me Father X was done running errands. No need to continue the stakeout. 
and thanks to the gift wrap and my new friend Smokey, I had a plan to gain entry to Father X's fortress. Just had to wait for sundown. It was now a little after 1 p.m., more than enough time for a nice lunch, a nap, a swim in the motel pool, and some gift wrapping. The liquor store was a half mile on foot from the Walmart parking lot. I bought a bourbon gift set that included a hundred-proof bottle of brown booze and two glasses inscribed with the expensive liquor's logo. A couple of weeks before this road trip, I called my high school girlfriend, Megan, who's now a respected professor of economics. Without prompting or providing any contacts, I asked if she remembered Father X. Oh, sure, she said. You used to call him Father Perv and Father Pervert. He'd give you lots of wine to drink, and you would tell me that he was always grabbing the younger altar boy's asses. By 5.30 p.m., I was back on the stakeout, watching Smokey come and go. When he sat on the bench for his 6.30 smoke break, I got out of the car and crossed the street, lugging an armful of wrapped Christmas presents, the bourbon gift box, and signed copies of my three books. While Smokey enjoyed his ciggy butt, I loitered in the shadows, waiting. Finally, he finished his smoke had his coughing fit, and shuffled back to his building. I entered the lobby about ten seconds ahead of him and cradled my cell phone between shoulder and ear, holding the gifts with both hands. If she has to go to the hospital, then we'll visit her there, I said to nobody, the moment Smokey hobbled into the lobby, stinking of tobacco. I gave him a bright smile of recognition. I understand, I said into the phone, and I agree. Grinning at Smokey, I stood there and shrugged, shifting the cumbersome load in my arms. Yes, yes, I said, I hear you. Just as I'd hoped, Smokey unlocked the door and held it open for me. I walked through and still feigning attention to the fake phone call, mouth thank you to my unwitting accomplice. I followed him for a few paces as he made his way to the elevator. Then I turned and strode quickly toward the stairwell. I didn't look back. I opened the heavy fire door and climbed five flights of stairs. At last, I'd reached my quarry's apartment. That's him, Father X, standing in his doorway, looking confused. Since there had been no call on the intercom, he probably assumed the door knocker was a neighbor, and yet there I stood, a total stranger with an armload of wrapped gifts and a secret hidden tape recorder, which is why the audio isn't so great. 
Also, there was an air cleaner and fan going throughout my visit, hence the humming undertones. Merry Christmas. Who are you? Do you remember me? No. You gotta remember me. Where would I know you from? St. Matthews. Really? I don't remember. Who's your best master of ceremonies ever? <laughs> the priesthood for Axe was like ancient history, a past life he never talked about, especially in this town. Around here, everyone knew him as a retired drug and alcohol counselor. I wanted him to guess my identity, to test his memory. If the old man had turned feeble-minded, the whole trip was going to be a waste. So I gave him another clue. You came to Chambay Holyoke Community College? Holyoke Community College. I was going to play. Chris? Yes. Chris Barry? Yes. Oh my God, come in. Thank you. Well, I tracked you down. How are you? I'm doing good. Oh, news. Who needs the news? Take your head off. Maybe because of the glasses? <laughs> also because I'm a little older. And you're a little older. Well, yeah. Put your hat on and your glasses. I didn't, you didn't have glasses then. My presence must have been a total surprise. Out of the blue, on a cold winter's night, someone from your distant and shady past knocks on the door. What was he thinking, I wondered, as he shut off the TV and cleared a pile of newspapers from his spare chair to make room for his unexpected guest. To break the ice, I handed him the first gift. As he unwrapped a signed copy of my book, Tough Island, he remembered the last time he actually saw me. So, I brought some gifts for you. Oh, well, thank you. Well, first of all, open that one. All right. <laughs> you babysat the, the, the rectory there while I was away at one point. You, you, went to the, you went to the Barbados? No, it was uh, Mexico. Well, he got that wrong. I know he went to the Caribbean. No matter, he still seemed lucid. I looked around the very small and very clean apartment. The living room was about 10 feet square, with a lone window to the brick backside of a taller building next door. Hanging on the wall was a framed photo, a portrait of his parents from the 1970s. Inside another frame hanging nearby were separate photo portraits of his two sisters from the same era. The rest of the place was devoid of decoration. Behind his well-worn lazy boy recliner was a small dining room table covered with piles of newspapers, stacks of books, and mail. He must eat all his meals in his beloved chair, feet up, watching the TV. Tough Island, true stories from Matinicus, Maine. You wrote that? I wrote that. As he examined Tough Island, I told him I was now a writer and journalist and filmmaker. Then I set the bait. I handed him the largest of my gifts. He unwrapped the paper delicately. 
Do you still drink? Yeah, I do, but I don't have anything. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, God, now what? It's heavy. Mad Creek? Mad Creek. It's been a long time since I've had bourbon. What, what do you drink these days? Rarely. Once in a while, some gin. Gin and tonic or something like that. Rare occasion, I'll buy a can of beer, but that's about, oh, my God. Yeah, it's two glasses, and I thought we could have a drink. Sure. All right, let me go wash these. The two heavy glasses bore the very expensive 100 proof bourbons logo and the new glasses needed washing. Which is how I ended up washing the glassware in his tiny kitchen. I heard X chuckling, marveling at this unexpected holiday visit. Talk about a Christmas miracle, an altar boy bearing top shelf booze. <laughs> I would like one ice cube. Do you have one ice cube? I think I have about four ice cubes. <laughs> I opened the freezer and took a quick inventory. Bags of frozen veggies, a stack of TV dinners, a container of ice cream, and, in the freezer door, many links of kibasa from a chickpea company. I pulled out the ice cube tray. Excellent. Would you like uh, uh, ice? Yeah, put a cube in there. Just to... Make it last a little longer. There we go. And that back to you. That's quite the clock. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I had that in the orchard. Oh, that's a beautiful chime. Mm. I don't even hear it anymore at night. I don't even wake up. Yeah. I don't even shut the door. It's just. No. <laughs> I call him grandfather. The six-foot-tall grandfather clock stood right next to his open bedroom door. This is the very clock whose chimes and gongs kept young Jack Ballard awake that night in 1986 while locked in the upstairs bathroom of St. Matthew's after Father X tried to rape him. Despite my extensive preparations, I didn't have a step-by-step -step conversational path to link our small talk to the real reason I was there. But I did have the bottle of booze. All right, you tell me when. About the same amount of each one. Oh. <laughs> there, thank you. Who are you? Cheers. Booze, combined with an eager listener, has confession-inducing power. But those confessions still must be coaxed out. And that takes time. So the first hour or so of my tape is mostly small talk, about him, mostly, because I didn't want X to know much about my life. Luckily, we hadn't seen each other in 30 years, so we had lots to talk about, like his first impressions of St. Matthew's, back in 1985, when he took the pastor job, replacing Father Norman Ricard, the gruff but nice former military chaplain who'd replaced the drunken Father Sullivan. I had never been in St. Matthew's Church. 
my God. Then I didn't know if I had done the right thing or not. I said, my God, this is a shack compared to where I came from. And it didn't even smell good inside the chair attached. The first few months were, were difficult. The house was so unkempt, the house was falling apart, the church was falling apart. But as I got you know, into the, the machinery of the parish and the school, and I, I grew to love it very, very, very much. You know. It must have been strange for him to be speaking aloud about this time of his life. No one in his current world knew he was a former priest, let alone a child molester. He could never share these tales. All his priestly stories, even the most banal, from his days of prestige and power, were forbidden, until I appeared with a bottle of bourbon. As we continued our conversation, X's ego kept showing up, like how he'd rescued St. Matthew's school. In episode 4, we saw that there'd been lots of pressure on Father Sullivan to use his financial acumen to save the school. Well, when Father X arrived, three years later, he found a straightforward solution to the recurring budget shortfalls. Turns out, very few parents with kids in the school were actually paying tuition. It was a, it was a tiresome thing for about three to four weeks. I met with every family that had a kid or several kids in the school. And uh, I had a, a contract. If you have your child in school, you must contribute this so much to the parish, or we can't help you out. We'll charge you full tuition. If you want the, the reduced tuition, I expect to see you in church, number one, and number two, this is what you owe us on a weekly basis. And I expected to get all kinds of flack. I got very little. It was very difficult to listen to Father X discuss his victories connected to my childhood school without pulling out the pepper spray and wire ties. Around the time he was allegedly saving St. Matthew's, he also tried to rape Jack Ballard upstairs at the rectory, and only the Lord knows how many other disgusting hugs and caresses of innocent altar boys, and here he is, having a veritable parade of potential victims. And, and I think the people appreciated the fact, I used to go to the, up to the school every day and spend half an hour, because I'd have lunch with the kids, just to mingle around with them. And uh, so the, the school, I thought, was picking up, and uh, it, was, it was a good place to go to. The thought of Father X visiting St. Matthew's school for lunch also creeped me out. How many boys did he touch inappropriately during his so-called mingling? Listening to him speak, it was clear that he was under the initial spell of the bourbon during that phase where the drinker brags and swaggers, and in this case, X was using the opportunity to remember the glory days of his youth when he was a master of a domain, not an old, poverty-stricken schlub living in subsidized housing, dealing with bedbugs. Instead, in his memory, he was a leader and a hero. Even when he left St. Matthew's, headed to what would turn out to be his final pastoral assignment at Our Lady of Hope, he was still looking out for his flock in Indian Orchard. Two or three weeks before I was physically on my way to Hope, I got a letter from uh, from a lawyer, from a firm. I, I had never heard the name. Uh, So-and-so who lived in the orchard, you know, years and years ago, has left, uh, bequeathed the, the rest of her money, or the, you know, all of her funds to, our, uh, to uh, St. Matthew's Parish, 
in the amount of one million something, something, something. Then I was saying, should I just stay here? <laughs> so I brought that letter with me to the bishop, and uh, he told me about our Lady of Hope and what, what they expected or wanted or hoped for. And uh, when we got all through talking about that, I said, I want to talk to you about something. I said, this is the letter I got from a million dollars coming into St. Matthew's. And uh, I said, I know we owe the diocese a lot of money, and we did. But I said, it would be so nice if that money could be used to renovate the church. I said, those people have been worshiping in that hole of a building. And that's what they did. They left it. They left the money. And so the bishop agreed and the million bucks was spent renovating St. Matthew's, thanks to the child-molesting priest. Finally, after lots of jibber-jabber, we eventually reached the subject of the summer of 1992, when he fired Sister Mary Lynch, the principal of Our Lady of Hope. Then, Father X was summoned to the chancery, where Bishop Marshall suspended him from the priesthood due to the allegations by David Stanley. I mean, what do you want to say to me about all this stuff? Is there anything you can tell me about that time period? It, from the perspective of an altar boy, it's like, oh, that's so crazy. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure it must sound that way. Um, I don't know the extent to which I, I want to open myself up to you on, that, on both scores, if you will. I just don't know. Um, it's not that I don't trust you, I don't really know you anymore yet. The liquor was starting to work its magic. Father X was loosening up, but still not enough to talk about the elephant in the room. So I changed the subject to the serial molester and suspected murderer, Richard Levine. People say he murdered Danny Crotto. I've heard that too, and I, I don't believe that. But I, you don't believe that? No, I don't. Did you know him, know him back then? Did you? I, did, I was never friends with him. I was an acquaintance of his. But uh, the police even came to see me one time after, after he got all his troubles. And uh, I was recuperating after a hip operation. And uh, they, wanted to know, they wanted to know if I thought he was capable of that. I said, I don't think so. Do you remember that murder? Oh, yes. I was at, I was at Oshpen. I never knew Danny. He, he was living over in the... St. Catherine of Siena territory, but he came to school. Because they didn't have a school. Yeah, right. We discussed a few other local church scandals, and I mentioned the rumor my parents had told me years ago that Father X had left the church and the priesthood to run off with a married woman. Then I let the first bomb drop. I told him I'd done research and found court documents and news stories describing what happened upstairs in the St. Matthew's Rectory with Jack Ballard. Well, what I read was disturbing, you know? It was very disturbing. And there's a, um, you know, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable even talking about this, you know, because I don't know, I don't even know what I'm asking. I mean, it's like, if you say Diocese of Springfield, there's, you know, a billion priests that are in trouble, millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. I mean... And plug into Boston and you're going to find the repetition. Bigger. Yeah. What happened to the church? Uh, what happened to the church? A lot of things. Uh, first of all, we discovered that our clergy is human and that everything that is present in society is also present, maybe microscopically, but is present in, in the, the, the group that is called clergy. You know, a lot of women have left the nunneries, if you will, 
and a lot of guys have left the ministry for a lot of reasons. And it's funny that you say, I, I ran off with a woman. <laughs> I, I just find that funny. Uh, I was gay as a $3 bill, you know, so it certainly wasn't that. Did you know you were gay back in the seminary? Yes, I was quite aware of it, but didn't do anything about it. Oh, because I read there was like a culture. I heard about that after I had left the you know. Oh, after you left. Oh, yeah. Too bad for you, right? Because it would have been different. <laughs> oh, in fact, uh, when I was in my deacon year, uh, I was considered one of the stable ones, if you want to call it that, or reliable ones. And uh, we were 20 or, so, 20 or so in my deacon class. And I was put in charge of one of the buildings on the seminary campus. I was in charge of St. Uh, whatever that whole name was. And uh, each building had a saint, saint's name, St. William, St. John's, that's the one I was in. And I, my, my room was over here in the corner, went down this way. And a guy from the Springfield Diocese was in a, in a room here. But aside of him was a vacant room, and it was locked, but the guy had gotten a key. And there was a, there was a whole gig thing going on in that spare room. They were going to the guy's room who had the had the room, he would let them in this door, in this room that was vacant, and they'd be having sex in there, and then they'd go back out this way. And they just, the party kept going on. I never knew any of it. I, didn't, I wasn't looking for it to start with, you know. There's a lot to unpack here. First of all, Father X graduated from St. John's Seminary in Boston in the mid-1960s. St. John's is the only seminary for the following diocese. Boston, Worcester, Springfield, plus all of New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, and Rhode Island. And every single one of those dioceses has been rocked by scandals involving scores of child-molesting priests who graduated from St. John's and went on to wreak havoc in churches and schools across New England. Obviously, there was a major problem in the seminary and dozens of other seminaries throughout the U.S., annually graduating unknown numbers of monsters to ruin countless lives. Secondly, according to Father X, there was a swinging secret sex room on the top floor of one of the seminary's dorms, and he claims he knew nothing about it while he was living there. Also, to think that Father X was considered stable and reliable is pretty friggin' scary. And after a little more small talk, I broached the topic of his bad behavior again. This thing that I read, it said that in 76, you and Bishop McGuire had conversations where he told you, you have to behave yourself. This is like in some relationship with a complaint about you from Our Lady of Sacred Heart. Is this not... Bring it it's about. possible. It's possible. Bishop's accountability yep. website came yep. up, yep. and within that, I read this thing about this case where they sued McGuire and Dupre, and that was the lawsuit with you being called all these things, mm -hmm. and McGuire admitted to having counseled you okay. in 1976 about behavior at. Yeah. Olsh. Okay. There was one instance there. Yeah. Yeah. Was that a, with a with a kid? With a kid. Yeah, a young man. Oh. 
So they talked to you in 76 about that? Yeah, I had a conference with the bishop, that's all that was about. At that point, Weldon was still alive, oh. Bishop McGuire was still the subordinate bishop. He hadn't become the ordinary, as we call it. And uh, I had just moved from Our Lady of Sacred not because of that, to Our Lady of Hope. And uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a curate, not as pastor. And uh, there was this incident with a, with a kid that I thought he was up and going for it, and he wasn't, of course. But, uh, and the bishop called me in, and uh, he was very nice about it, very gentle, very understanding. And uh, that was it. And then you just continued on your ministry. There's no counseling or anything like that? No, unfortunately not. Unfortunately? You're saying you should have gone counseling? In what? retrospect, yeah. Oh, sure. To recap that passage, Father X viewed his attempted rape of David Stanley as, quote, an incident with a kid that I thought was up and going for it, end quote. At the time of this interview, I hadn't yet read the Stanley's affidavits or David's letters to the bishop, so I didn't know that Father X had brought David to the Our Lady of Hope rectory for an overnight visit under the pretense of counseling the boy following the death of his older brother, or that David had to lock himself in the bathroom all night to avoid being raped by the man now sitting next to me. I needed another drink, so I stood and grabbed the bottle off the counter. Are there any more ice cubes? I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go without. I'm just going to have a little more sip here as we're okay. talking. Um, Do you want a little more? You're, you're okay? No, I'm all right. Thank you. I don't really drink a great deal. And <clears throat> I feel my throat stick. Right after his sit-down with the bishop in 1976, Father X was transferred to serve as chaplain at a hospital outside of Greenfield. This was done to keep him away from children, though it turned out to be an easy job with excellent housing and no real boss. Plus, he was making extra cash by continuing to serve as a substitute pastor. This was supposed to be his punishment for attempting to rape a boy and for fondling another during his so-called penance he made enough cash to buy a brand new car at Buick Park Avenue. The topic shifted back to safer territory as we discussed his second career as a drug and alcohol counselor, about his job and clients, about the failures and the successes. I got a beautiful letter from some young man who's, I don't know where he's at now, but this was several years ago. And... Uh, thanking me for everything I did and, you know, for listening. And he said, you, you, you taught me my, you taught me to believe in myself. No, you, you believed in me before I even believed in myself. You know, I still have the letter somewhere, but uh, it's the only letter I ever got from, from, a, from a client. You know. The booze was starting to take hold. I could hear it in his voice, especially when the conversation turned to the story of his niece who overdosed on heroin the year before. My, my niece, the one that died of an overdose, uh, as, as a young teenage girl, she had a hell of a time. And I can remember my sister Charlotte, that one there. That was one of her daughters, and Marcy was her name, always getting into trouble. Marcy, and I was then at my first tour of Our Lady of Hope, with a school associate there, 
Charlotte would call up, can I bring Marcy over? Uh, right. so Charlotte would sit somewhere else and I'd talk to Marcy until I was blown in the face. And Marcy was, I don't know what the hell was going on with her, but she was going with three and four guys at a time and go for it, you know, <laughs> anything you want. And uh, she was drinking and, and uh, she kind of cleaned up the sex part of it, I think. Then she got married and had a few kids. But, and I, I remember speaking to her. She'd call me up, and I was sensing that you know she was using something, even though I didn't think she was drunk. But I could tell things weren't the way they should be. And I remember saying to her one day, "You're not still taking drugs, are you?" And she's, "Oh no, uncle! No, no, oh no, uncle!" But she was. No longer. It was my first winter here. All of a sudden, late at night, uh, my, Marcy was divorced. Her husband lived in the same town, but elsewhere. And I got a phone call. He said, this is Bob. I said, Bob, who? <laughs> and he said, Bob, Marcy's husband. Oh, okay. And I just wanted to go and tell you Marcy's dead. Oh, jeez. Marriage died of a heroin overdose. Well, Marcy had had a history of being sexually abused from a very young age. By who? Well, somebody in the family, we find out, you know. Yeah. Didn't find that out until, well, long after. But. So she was... We continued discussing his family's story. His father and mother had both worked in a wire factory, his father on the machines, while his mother was a milliner, making knockoffs of designer hats for women. His lips loosened by the booze. X wasn't shy in discussing the tension between his parents. Well, uh, my mother and father did not get along very well. They, they lived together. In fact, one time I told them they ought to get a divorce because I, you know, I thought it would be easier for them to live apart than together. <laughs> Were you a priest at that point? At that point, yes. Yeah. So their priest son counsels them to get a yeah. divorce. Well, I didn't say it that way, but uh, I got a call, and I was in Orange then. I got a call. Oh, God, it was middle of the night, almost middle of the night. My mother called, and we need you. I said, well, geez, I didn't know what to do. I 40 or 50 miles down the road. And, well, my mother, because they weren't getting along, and she, he had a credit card, and she slipped it out of his wallet. She spent over $1,400 on God knows what, I don't know. And uh, he didn't have 1400 to replace it. And I said, well, neither do I. But I said, you know, I said, I'm not coming here to play doctor for you people. You're big people. And I said, I'm not going to stay here. I said, if you can't make it together, I said, make it apart. But don't ever call me again like this. You have a pastor for that. You have you have people in your town here who do that kind of counseling. But don't you ever call somebody in your family again or something like that. And I said, then don't get up. I'm leaving now. And, you know, right. So I did. My mother was all upset because of that day. How do you remember my parents? Do you remember them at all? Sure. What do you think about them now, you know, many years? They were nice people. They were good people. I went to your parents' house on, was it New Year's or Christmas when they had a, an open house? Yeah, Christmas, yeah. Christmas, okay. I went to yeah. your house one year for that. Yeah. yeah. They had that forever. Yeah. Yeah, I really miss them now, and I wish I had a different relationship with them. Oh, yeah. of, course. of course. Do you feel that about your parents? That you had a different relationship with them, or? Oh, yeah. Um, How would it have been different? Did they ever talk about sex with you? Uh... One time I remember my mother 
my mother was bringing laundry. I came home from I came home from school at the same time every day. I was in grammar school, let's say seventh grade or so. First thing I, I did when I got home, I jerk off once because of that. school was over, so it was time for that. You know, kids. And uh, anyway, she came in my room with my laundry, and I was jerking off in the middle of this. I thought she was going to jump through the window. <laughs> oh, God. And uh, the only thing she said about that was, don't you ever do that again. I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> I never do it again. And you never did. Oh, oh no. I've since learned from others who knew Father X's family back in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s that Mr. and Mrs. X were always fighting, even in public, and that the elder Mr. X was seven feet tall and a real devil and dirtbag. They stayed together oh, yeah. until the end. Oh, yeah. He took his own life. What? Oh, yeah. Shot himself through the head while I was at St. Matthew's. Yeah. While you were at St. Matthew's, yeah. he killed himself. Yeah. They were living in Brimfield at that point. Yeah, Brimfield, yeah. Wow. Any theories on that? Why? Who knows? Who knows? He was always talking about, I'm going to do it. Oops. I got so sick of hearing it, I said, well, for God's sake, if you, if you insist on it, do it. But don't talk about it anymore. Yeah. I shouldn't have said that, but I did. And it was about six or eight months after that that he did it. Yeah. My father was the sexual abuser in our family. Of your niece? Of everybody. Of you? Of me. Of my two sisters. My sister Lorraine, uh, she got it full bore. Suddenly, everything changed. I'd been so furious with Father X that I'd been blind to the possible causes of his crimes. Perhaps his story was not so black and white. My anger melted into sadness and I began to view Father X through a different lens. Devils and Dirtbags is written and produced by me, Crash Barry. Theme song by Dave Gutter. Editorial assistance by Chris Busby and Brian Fitzgerald. For early access to Devils and Dirtbags, subscribe to MainerNews.com, a worker-owned media cooperative. Visit DevilsAndDirtbags.com for a bibliography of source materials, plus redacted PDFs, of victim statements and never-before-published secret memos from church leaders. While there, you can learn about my books, my other journalism, and movie, or send me an email. Next time on Devils and Dirtbags. Father X, primed by the bourbon and a willing listener, reveals the dark secret that's haunted him for decades. It's sordid enough to shock, disgust, and sadden even the angriest and most judgmental type of person, like me.